We're putting our foot down to keep our feet up, like way up, with Lazy Boy. Our phones will be set to do not disturb, our podcast to full volume, and our sofas to recline. After a full day of doing a lot of adulting, the only thing we'll be doing is a lot of nothing. It's our right to take time for our well-deserved lazy time. We, the lazy, are taking back lazy, all from the comfort of our Lazy Boy furniture. Lazy Boy, long live the lazy. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Everyone and welcome back to Election 2024, the Post Political Roundtable. I'm Sean Sullivan, campaign editor here at the Washington Post, and today we continue our discussion about the 2024 election with some of the top journalists in our newsroom. First up today, Josh Dossie, political enterprise and investigations reporter here at the Post. Josh, you've been braving the cold with me and others here in New Hampshire. Uh, welcome back to Election 2024. Yeah, and it's still better than Iowa, where we were last week. So this is this is almost balmy. <laughs> yeah, it really is. We should go out and take a take a walk in shorts after this. It feels that way. Um, hey, Josh, I want to dig in first to the biggest story of the last twenty four hours, and you've been all over this in your coverage, uh, and that is the departure from this race of Ron DeSantis. Um, his campaign didn't even make it to primary day in New Hampshire. Can you talk a little bit about what happened? both yesterday and then in the bigger picture here for a campaign that, you know, a year or so ago had uh, a, a lot more promise in the eyes of some Republicans. Yeah, I think what happened yesterday was reality eventually just set in. I mean, his team had been trying to convince him for uh, many days now, but there really wasn't much of a path forward for Ron DeSantis in this race. I mean, he started as sort of a high-flying candidate. He was viewed by a lot of the Republican donors and and much of even some of the activist class as next generation of Republican leadership, the person most likely to to uh, take on Donald Trump and potentially be the nominee. And that really faded from the beginning. It started with a glitzy launch on uh, Twitter, now known as X, uh, that crashed and he couldn't even announce his campaign starting. Then he had uh, lots of sort of squibbles with donors who were frustrated with him, a number of awkward interactions on the campaign trail, uh, a lot of coalescing around support uh, around Trump after he was indicted uh, in various jurisdictions. Republicans sort of came home to him because they felt like he was being treated, being treated as a martyr. He had lots of fights on his political staff between his outside super PAC and his campaign, uh, lots of resignations, damaging disclosures to the news media. And really a candidate that just could not find his footing as far as interacting with voters. I mean, there's a lot that's being discussed on, you know, all the problems of his campaign. And, and those are all certainly true. But at its core, it was a candidate who just did not um, connect with Republican voters uh, in a palpable way as much as he needed to in this election. At the end of all this, he not only drops out of the race, but he endorses Donald Trump, the candidate he has spent a lot yeah. of time criticizing, and a candidate who has taken a lot of criticism from Trump, who has demeaned him, who's given him um, insulting nicknames. So explain that to us, and, and what does your reporting say? Why would Ron DeSantis, after this really, really bruising matchup with Trump, where they've just traded insults from both sides yeah. over the past year, why would he all of a sudden say, all right, I'm, I'm with this guy now? 
Yeah, I think he's with him because he knows where it's heading. And he knows Trump, in his mind, is going to be the nominee and that he doesn't really want the bruising attacks on him to continue. I mean, he he ends this sort of chapter of his political career weaker than when he began it, right? He started off higher in the polls. He started off numbers. And a lot of the reason why is that Trump, who has a durable and uh, sort of unique connection to the Republican base, has just bludgeoned him for months and months and months. And Trump's team has as well. And I think DeSantis cares about 2028. He cares about being viewed on the right as a warrior who is sort of palatable uh, for the future. And being back on the side of Trump uh, is one step to making that happen. Uh, it is sort of remarkable, though, as you know, Sean, I mean, Trump has taken just particular glee and eviscerating DeSantis for months. And the first thing he does upon dropping out of the race is to endorse Trump. But that's sort of the reality of where the GOP is right now, uh, that any other any other sign would not probably be politically uh, feasible if you were just looking at it from a cold and clinical way. It's a really good insight. And it does seem like he does have an eye on the future um, for whatever he decides to do politically moving forward. So DeSantis out. We now have two candidates left, Trump, and Haley, what do we got here in New Hampshire? What's the state of play on the ground? Um, what are you seeing and, and what are you hearing in your reporting? Yeah, I haven't covered Haley closely here. Uh, colleagues of ours at The Post say that there's been some energy around her events. And as you said, she's the last one standing um, here. But Trump does lead in the polls here. And I think of the safe projection here, uh, at least if you believe the analysts and observers and everyone who's sort of watching this race, is that Trump is likely to win tomorrow night. And then things get even harder for Nikki Haley. I know this sounds sort of uh, surprising, but the next state is South Carolina, where she was governor. Uh, she won twice in the state. But Trump is really ahead of her in South Carolina. And the, and the MAGA sort of movement in South Carolina remains very strong. And even a lot of her closest allies and longtime donors and supporters think it would be almost impossible for her to win in South Carolina. So no matter what happens tomorrow night, she sort of has a tough choice coming ahead. Uh, she's the last one in the race, of course. There's going to be increasing calls for her to drop out, for the party to unify. You're going to see pressure come from all sorts of angles, from donors, from activists, from Trump folks. Um, but as long as she thinks she still has a chance to keep this going, uh, people close to her think she will. I guess the question is, how close is the race tomorrow night? If she comes in, um, you know, if she somehow wins, obviously she would keep it going. But if she comes in second and comes within a few points, maybe that's enough momentum to keep it going. I guess we don't really know. But I would say it looks uphill for her in this battle against Trump. And also what we don't know is what DeSantis supporters will do. It's hard for me to imagine many of them going to Haley in mass. A lot of them may go back to Trump. So we got to watch and see how that plays out. Oh, and that could boost his totals even more um, tomorrow night when we look at this. One of the interesting things uh, last week in the Haley versus Trump back and forth that came up was there was a speech that Trump gave where he was attacking Nikki Haley. And he appeared to mistakenly uh, mention Haley's name instead of Nancy Pelosi's name yeah. um, when he was talking about something. And then Haley seized on that. The next day, she's been making an issue of his age, um, yeah. of his competency. And I just wonder, Josh, in the bigger picture here, as Team Trump sort of looks for the rest of this primary and also potentially the general election, is that a liability for them? Is that something that they think um, could potentially be a problem? Is that something they're trying to head off in some way? Uh, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, her argument has is, is been that it's time for a new generation of leadership, right? And she's contrasted herself against Trump. She's, you know almost 30 years younger than him, 
um, obviously looks far younger and that the, the country just needs to move on. What she's tried to do is give Trump supporters a general off-ramp to say, I know you like this guy, but it's just time for something new. It's time for something young. I, I don't know that Trump's uh, advisors and team see age as a major albatross in the general election because Biden is even older than Trump is and makes a number of gaffes himself, you know, has had several uh, falls that have been used by his enemies to kind of paint a picture of him, you know, as doddering and senile. Um, his team obviously says that's not true. Uh, but there's there's a challenge for Biden on age as well. I think Trump's age and Trump's proclivity to say things that, you know, are, are incorrect or um, make mistakes like he did there, obviously, uh, would be more deleterious to him if uh, the candidate he was facing was not older and did not pinch up for doing the same thing. And that's the argument sort of Nikki Haley is making, right? I'm better to beat Biden because I am a younger person. I'm of a new generation. There's already one candidate that's that's old and that um, a lot of the country doesn't want. So we don't need to elect a, or nominate a second one. But so far, Sean, that argument has not seemed to be working. Yeah, really awesome. And Josh, you made a great point about the off-ramp, uh, which I think really sums up kind of what Haley's trying to do, give these Republicans an off-ramp. And in some ways, it seemed like DeSantis was trying to do that, too. Hey, I could be Trump without the chaos or Trump with yeah. a better ability to execute his agenda. And it seems like just reflecting on this whole primary, a lot of these Republicans tried to sort of tiptoe around him or provide these off-ramps, and none of it seem to work. And I right. wonder what you sort of think that says about the Republican Party yeah. and what your reporting shows about kind of how they tried these strategies and then why they fell flat. Well, there's been hundreds of millions of dollars spent over the last 18 months or so trying to figure out how to beat Trump by various groups, uh, you know, Club for Growth, Americans for Prosperity, all sorts of groups on the right who wanted a different nominee. And they've tested all sorts of attacks. Um, Trump said he was going to build a border wall and Mexico was going to pay for it. He didn't do that. Trump said he would repeal and replace Obamacare. Obamacare still exists. Uh, Trump said that, uh, you know, he would do various things in the campaign that now he didn't do. He's made various comments on abortion where he's attacked folks for supporting a six-week heartbeat bill. They've tried that. Um, they've tried all sorts of attacks on him. Trump praises dictators. He, you know, is too friendly with guys like uh, Vladimir Putin and, and Kim Jong-un. And among Republican voters, um, they just haven't landed. I mean, if you talk to pollsters who work for Trump, if you talk to pollsters who work against Trump, uh, pollsters in other camps, what they all sort of universally tell you is that a lot of these attacks that they believe would work just haven't. Uh, I was talking to some DeSantis advisors uh, last week before he dropped out, and they were describing the frustration of sitting in focus groups with the voters and hearing them, you know, sort of defend Trump no matter what they told them. They would say, oh, he did this, he said that. The voters would say, no, that's not true. He, he would never do that, right? So all of these campaigns and candidates have had um, really frustrating times trying to get anything to stick to him uh, because you have a Republican base where a lot of them do not want to hear criticism of Donald Trump. I mean, I remember uh, Mark Short, who was Mike Pence's chief of staff, told me at the beginning of the campaign, you know, it's hard to run an anti-Trump campaign because no one wants to hear it. And I've sort of continued to think about that. There's not much appetite in the Republican Party for criticism of him right now. There really doesn't seem to be. Last thing I wanted to ask you, Josh, is typically in the past, we've seen candidates as they sort of close in on the nomination like Trump is now, um, you know, have a more unifying message to try to bring the party together after what can sometimes be a pretty nasty primary fight. 
Uh, are you starting to sense that from Trump now? Is there any expectation that that he will sort of uh, change his tone a little bit? Or how do you see him sort of, what kind of message do you see him sort of sending as he kind of closes in on this thing and the trajectory that he's at? How many times over the years have we talked about Trump changing his tone? Sorry, it just sort of makes me smile. Um, but he was, um, <laughs> He was gracious last night in what he said about DeSantis. I mean, he came out and said, I'm retiring the nickname De Sanctimonious forever. He didn't attack him anymore. His team put out a statement praising DeSantis. Um, he sort of has a, a penchant for when folks sort of bend the knee and say, you know, I'm endorsing you, I'm giving in to you, that he stops sort of um, eviscerating him the way he was previously. Uh, but I don't really know what he'll do going forward with others. Uh, you know, I think you saw now Bergram has endorsed him, right? Uh, you saw Tim Scott. I mean, most of the field now is behind him. And he does his, um, you know, he called after Iowa the other night, for example. He said the party needs to unify and come behind me. Uh, so he does that sometimes. But whether that slip service or whether that sticks, I, I guess we'll see. We shall see indeed. All right, Josh Dossie, thank you so much for joining us. Stay warm out there. Uh, just a couple more days of this cold, so uh, hang in there. Yeah, I will, and uh, thanks for having me. I want to continue the discussion right now with two more of our national political reporters, Colby Itkowitz and Marianne Levine. Welcome back to the program to the both of you um, who have also spent time in New Hampshire. And Marianne, I wanted to start with you. You've been covering Trump pretty closely. You've seen these events up close in New Hampshire. What has the reception been like? Is he getting big crowds? Is he drawing a sort of enthusiastic response here in the state? How, how would you sort of summarize uh, the, the response that he's getting here? There are definitely really big crowds here for Trump. I was at his rally on Saturday night and it was freezing outside and yet the line was going back really far. Um, he is definitely filling out um, filling out the rooms that he's um, that he's in and whether it's a stadium or some of the smaller venues. Um, he had a smaller event in Portsmouth and at one point the fire marshal had to tell people to leave. So it's definitely he's def we're definitely sensing the enthusiasm on the ground here and it seems comparable to the enthusiasm he had in Iowa where he was pretty dominant on caucus night. Well, you've spent some time in the state, you've talked to voters, you've seen the candidates. So now that DeSantis is out of this race, from Haley's perspective and from the perspective of her campaign, what do you think that does to this contest right now that she's in a one-on-one -on -one with Trump? Yeah, and Haley came out of Iowa coming in third, but saying that it was a two-person race. Uh, she was kind of discounting DeSantis before he dropped out. And so we, it's been like a two-person race the whole time this for this past week or so. Um, and you hear from people at her events that they're desperate for an alternative to both Trump and Biden. I met a lot of Biden 2020 supporters at Haley events saying they just wanted someone fresh, someone new, a new generation of leadership, which is what been her pitch all along. Um, the issue is, is there enough of those voters to come out um, tomorrow and, and put her over the top? And it doesn't appear that there are be a key question when we look at the returns tomorrow night. So Marianne, uh, Trump got an endorsement last week from a former rival um, who you've also covered uh, pretty closely, Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina, senator from Nikki Haley's home state. Uh, he appeared with him here in the state. Can you talk a little bit about the significance potentially of this endorsement in a race like this? How much do you think this matters here and, and could affect things? 
I'm not sure that Tim Scott's endorsement in New Hampshire uh, will have a significant impact out here, but it does raise um, the bar for South Carolina for Nikki Haley. Um, and I think that Trump bringing in both Senator Tim Scott and as well as Governor Henry McMaster was a way for him to kind of troll Haley, kind of as he did with DeSantis uh, back in August when he brought Florida lawmakers to the Iowa State Fair. Um, so I think it's definitely symbolic for Trump and it's a way for him to tell to sort of signal to Haley hey I'm dominant in your home state and it's a it's definitely a show of force I think the other thing about having Scott out here is it's of course going to generate more buzz about whether or not he's potentially going to join Trump on the ticket as we head to the general um Scott was here on Friday he's also going to be on stage with Trump tonight and he's going to be campaigning for Trump tomorrow and I think it's interesting to note too that when Scott was running for president he barely touched Trump. He never really went after him directly. He basically said he had an optimistic message, but never really criticized Trump in the way that some of the other Republicans in the primary field had, like Chris Christie or Asa Hutchinson, um, who obviously did not do well either. Um, but it is, I think, the the big question for Scott and the big question for uh, for those of us who are watching all of this is whether or not this is a vice president audition and how and whether or not the Trump campaign is assessing how he does at these events as they try to figure out who Trump is going to pick as his running mate. It's really interesting. And I should add, we're talking about newly engaged Tim Scott. Mm -hmm. uh, as That's you right. scooped with your colleague uh, yesterday, Marianne. But I want to drill down on that question of the running mate idea, because it's one that seems like it does come up a lot. And even beyond Scott, we've seen other Republicans here um, appear for Trump in a way that, you know, some of the party are looking at it as like, well, maybe they're sort of auditioning for this. You, you had a good story on um, Elise Stefanik, who's another Trump ally. Um, can you talk a little bit about who we've seen come through the state and who is sort of seen right now as a potential running mate if, if he is the nominee? Yeah, I mean, this just in the last few days, we've seen Elise Stefanik from New York. We've seen J.D. Vance. We've seen um, Tim Scott. Those are the names that I think people are discussing just because they were out here in New Hampshire as surrogates. Elise Stefanik had a pretty big crowd on Saturday. Granted, it was um, you're in uh, the event was at a at the campaign office, which is, um, you know, small quarters sometimes. But nevertheless, the room was completely filled. She is someone who is widely viewed as a potential vice presidential candidate. She has has been a really staunch uh, supporter of Trump um, in the last few years, especially going back to his first impeachment. And Trump even called her up on stage on Friday. So she's definitely someone whose name is out in the ether. The um, J.D. Vance was... Um, was also out here. Um, Trump basically helped Vance get the nomination to become um, the senator from Ohio. Um, he, he basically helped um, he helped Vance get um, the Republican nomination in his Senate race. And so I think that loyalty to Trump is definitely there um, from J.D. Vance. And then, of course, you have Tim Scott. So, so those are some of the names. But I think it's important to note that the Trump campaign has really tried to tamp down any discussion about the vice presidency, especially given that they're trying to basically voice that the race is not over quite yet and that they want to focus on New Hampshire. So I think that even as Trump suggested in Iowa that he knew who he was going to pick, it's still a pretty big question. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of speculation and a lot of names that are out there, true or not, um, about who he might pick as his running mate. A lot of interesting stuff to watch. So, okay, let's bring it back to New Hampshire then. And Colby, you had some interesting reporting last week about Nikki Haley, who 
on the one hand, was ramping up and has been even since then ramping up her attacks on Trump. But on the other, you know, there were some interesting Republicans that you talked to who felt like she could go farther, that she could say more, that she could take those attacks and should take those attacks to another level. She has escalated in some ways in the past few days. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that dynamic, this balance that she's trying to strike and how some Republicans seem to think, look, she needs to go farther. If she's going to make up this ground, she really needs to attack him a little bit more sharply. Right. I mean, and that's what a lot of Republican operatives who are anti-Trump, who are never Trumpers, say to me. They say, you know, where has Nikki Haley been after the various indictments? Um, why hasn't she come out and strongly said this is not the type of person we want leading our country? Why wasn't she more of a Chris Christie type if she wanted to draw that distinction between her and President Trump? They say she hasn't done enough to distinguish why uh, she is a better choice than Trump and that they think that, yes, yeah, she's gone over after him about his age recently. Um, she's attacked him for his role in Republicans losing some House and Senate seats um, in 2022. but. Overall, it's been pretty mild, um, and she's she's towed this really fine balance that a lot of Republican candidates have, where they don't want to upset him, they don't want to get on his bad side, because that gets on the base's bad side. And at the end of the day, she still needs core Republicans to also support her. So it's very complicated. Um, it's a complicated dance for her. But a lot of the operatives that I talked to think that if she had come out early on and really hit Trump hard on this idea, again, that he is not fit uh, to be president of the United States, that she might have shored up even more support in a place like New Hampshire. Interesting. And of course, I guess the flip side argument of that is, you know, she could potentially alienate more Trump supporters by by going hard after him. Um, and I guess we'll find out tomorrow night, like, you know, how this strategy um, actually plays out. I wanted to ask both of you, you spent time talking to voters uh, across New Hampshire. Sure. Every time I turn on the TV in my hotel room, I see a different ad on a different issue. So start with you, Marianne. What what are the issues that matter to voters? Is, is it about policy? Is it about personality? Is it about stuff that's going on in the national radar? Like when you talk to them, what really moves them and what is motivating them right now to come out for uh, the candidates that they like? Well, one topic that comes up almost unanimously is the border. I think that that's probably that has kind of struck me in voter interviews that um, it's it's always it's people are very quick to say that the border is top of mind for them when they think about when they think about wanting to re to wanting Trump to become president again. Um, and Trump has obviously made that a really central part of his pitch. Democrats see this issue as a liability for Biden, but it's clear that the Republican messaging around the border is definitely coming through to um, to voters out here. And then um, I, I would say probably secondary in talking to voters is um, is the indictments that often comes up, the feeling that Trump is being attacked, that they're going after him. That's a sentiment that is pretty widely shared here. But I would definitely say that, at least in the interviews in New Hampshire, the border comes up probably the most frequently in, when, when I speak to people. You know, given all of the ads and the money that we've seen on the air with that, and, and also the, the extent to which Trump and other candidates have talked about that issue. Um, Colby, what about you? When you talk to voters, what are you what are you kind of hearing? What sticks out to you about what's on their minds? Yeah, Mary is absolutely correct. Whether you're at a Trump event or a Haley event, I hear people talking about the border all the time. They're really, really concerned, and it runs kind of the ideological spectrum. Um, and so Trump really early on, uh, when he pivoted to start attacking Haley, hit her on the border. 
uh, claimed that she didn't support his border wall. She has said that's categorically untrue, but her response back has not been that strong. And so she hasn't really distinguished herself on the border either uh, when giving voters uh, a choice. When I'm at Trump events, I do also hear about the indictments and this feeling like he's been targeted, that he is you know, fighting for, for them on several fronts. Um, but then when I'm at Haley events, I did hear a lot about this issue of age. I heard a lot of uh, voters say that they were just concerned about having two older men uh, running, potentially running the country for the next one of one of two elderly men potentially running the country for the next four years. Um, and again, Haley has really tried to capitalize on that sentiment. It seems like she senses that that's a concern for voters that come to see her. Um, again, like I said at the top, is there enough voters in New Hampshire concerned about that to to surpass Donald Trump? Our polls uh, suggest no, but I guess we'll wait and see tomorrow. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. There is also a Democratic primary happening, and we've talked a lot about the Republican primary, and it's an unusual Democratic primary in many ways. President Biden's not even on the ballot. It doesn't count in the terms of delegates to the convention. Um, it's an unusual situation, and there's a write-in campaign for uh, for Biden. So, Colby, can you sort of unpack what is happening here and why we are seeing uh, this sort of unusual uh, turn of events in New Hampshire right now with the Democratic race? Sure. So New Hampshire has been the first in the nation primary um, forever. And uh, the DNC decided uh, sometime last year that they thought South Carolina was a better representation of the electorate uh, to go first. Uh, New Hampshire said, heck no, we're still going to go first. And the DNC said, well, then Biden's not going to be on your ballot. And so that's where we are right now. We have a primary, a Democratic primary tomorrow where the president of the United States, the incumbent, is not even going to show up on the ballot. And so a lot of Biden allies in New Hampshire have set out on this write-in campaign crusade so that he's not embarrassed uh, uh, tomorrow when the results come out. And they've been trying to convince Democrats to come out and write in Joe Biden's name. Now, there are two other people on that ballot. Uh, Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips are both hoping to uh, you know, show up and perform well tomorrow. Dean Phillips has been saying something like a 20, 30 percent vote for him would be a win in New Hampshire. Um, but again, these these Biden supporters just really don't want Biden to come out of this New Hampshire primary looking weakened in any way. We'll see how many people actually show up, write his name in, because these write-in campaigns can be very difficult to, to predict, and there's not many past precedents. Uh, and as we look ahead to this potential Biden-Trump rematch that uh, a lot of strategists seem to believe is, is in the offing, and if you look at the direction of these two races. It looks like that's where we're headed. Marianne, what are you hearing from both Republicans and Democrats about the prospect of a Biden-Trump rematch? Is this something both sides are relishing? Is there fear politically uh, on one or both sides about rerunning this race? What What are you sort of hearing overall about the potential for uh, another contest like this? Well, I think if you talk to people outside the two campaigns, there's a broad sentiment that no one wants the Trump-Biden rematch. That if you know, if you ask voters, the majority of voters um, will say that they would rather not see the Trump-Biden rematch. But it does appear that we are headed that way. I mean, my sense from talking to people is the expectation that this is going to be a close race. This is not. There's a lot of unpredictability here, and I think that's one of the things that's 
kind of hanging out there is there's, you know, there's unpredictability with Trump's legal challenges. You know, does he get a conviction? Um, there's unpredictability just generally about, you know, whether Biden can overcome his unpopularity and can get voters to kind of see, um, to, to sort of recognize some of his, his legislative accomplishments. There's just a lot of questions. And then there's a question too, that you have two fundamentally like unpopular people who are going to be on the ticket. And I, I think that raises questions about turnout. Trump obviously has very ardent supporters who are who have come out for him so far in the primary. But I think when we're looking at the general election, there's a lot of open questions about what is this actually going to look like in the key swing states. And I think that it's it's hard to predict, but there's a lot of variables that we don't know. And there's also the age question too. And so I think we're entering a general election season where there's just a lot of uncertainty, even if the what's on the ticket is um, is it seems relatively certain at the current moment. But I think that we have a few months ahead of us before we can really say what this is going to look like. But I think there's a general expectation that it's going to be a close race. Paul seems to to show that. Uh, Colby, I wanted to give you the uh, the last word here. But as you look toward that matchup, I wanted to ask you about the economy, and this is an issue that has at least in past elections, been a dominant front and center issue. You've got President Biden talking about Bidenomics on one hand, trying to tout uh, his economic record. On the other hand, you have Trump and Republicans pointing to uh, inflation and the rise in costs over the past several years uh, on Biden's watch. So when you look at the issue of the economy, you've talked to voters in, in New Hampshire and elsewhere. Is there an advantage at this point um, to either Trump or Biden, and how heavily do you think this factors into that matchup if, if we are indeed um, about to enter into a, a Biden-Trump rematch? Yeah, I think it factors in heavily, and I think right now Trump has the advantage. There is this general sense among voters when I talk to them that life was, you know, pre-COVID, of course, but like life was easier, it was better when Trump was president. Um, and a lot of that has to do with inflation and the cost of, of goods. And so people bring up all the time the cost of gasoline and the cost of eggs and the cost of milk and feeling like their paycheck doesn't go as far as it did when Trump was president. You know, Biden's going to have to overcome that perception. Um, even though inflation has kind of stalled, it doesn't mean that the prices are necessarily uh, coming down at the rate that people could actually feel that difference. And so even though there are a lot of measures and markers showing that the economy is actually improving under President Biden, so far that has not resonated with the voters. And I think what the Biden campaign is really hoping is that, you know, after the primary settles and it's really just Trump v. Biden, even if people have some economic woes, they'll have like a gut check moment. Do we really want Donald Trump as our president again for four years? I don't. President Biden is not necessarily counting on a lot of enthusiastic votes for him. What they're counting on is a lot of enthusiastic votes against Donald Trump. Uh, really interesting. Well, certainly a lot to watch in the next 10 months. Uh, for now, we are going to have to leave it right there since we are out of time. But Colby, Marianne, thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, and Marianne, stay warm out there. I'm going to try to throw on an extra jacket myself uh, as we brave the final days of this New Hampshire campaign. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. 
conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute, and craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.